16. Matthew 16. And uh, we'll be beginning our uh, study this morning in that place. Matthew chapter 16. It is good to see you this morning. We have visitors with us. We want you to know we're glad that you're here. Thank you for taking the time and making the effort to be here. I know that it is not a normal time, and uh, it is not normal to come to a place with a bunch of people you don't know, who you can't even see their faces, and uh, we're thankful that you've uh, been brave enough to do that, and we want you to know we're glad that you're here. We'd like to get to know you, and if you can, stick around for a minute after our service, and uh, we'd like to talk with you and and, uh, learn more about you. Uh, For those who are tuning in online and who are watching through our live stream, we're thankful that you're with us, too. Uh, I know uh, our building is not... I don't even think we're half full, are we? But uh, we, we've got uh, people here and people online, and so uh, through all of that, we, uh, we know that we're doing our best to be one and to be unified as we think about God's things and worship Him together. Uh, but I appreciate everyone being here in whatever form they are here this morning. Matthew 16 and verse 16 is where I want to begin. It says, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus speaks confidently about his church. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I want to spend our time this morning thinking about a question that has been on my mind. I suppose maybe it hasn't been framed quite this way in your mind, but I think there's something similar that most of us have been thinking uh, during a time like the one that we're living through. And that is the question, can the church survive COVID? And why do I ask that? I ask that because from time to time I talk with people in other places, uh, in other congregations, in other uh, cities. And uh, as I do, maybe I'll talk to other preachers and we kind of compare notes and see how things are going. And maybe I'll just talk to other brethren in other places. You know, what are you guys up to? How are things going in the congregation? We're all sort of in uncharted territory here, so I think it's normal to want to ask. But bad things are happening. The report is almost uniformly bad. Christians are dying. Christians are scared. Christians are angry. Christians are hostile with each other. Are we going to wear masks, or will there be no masks? has become a major issue in 2020. I don't think we could have foreseen that. Christians are politically angry because politics have seeped into a lot of these discussions and really have seeped into church affairs generally. Congregations are splitting. I know of congregations that are dividing over some of these issues. Brethren have stopped spending time together because, of course, it's really hard to spend time together when we're worried about getting each other sick. And some Christians are just drifting, kind of lost touch with the group, kind of lost touch with God, kind of lost touch with Bible study, just kind of falling through the cracks. So on the one hand, we have kind of the personal toll that the virus is taking, the sickness itself, which many of us have gotten now, and and it's had its own impact on us, and then our fear of it, or our fear of what will happen if we get it, or our fear of what the government is going to do or not do. The physical and emotional distance takes a personal toll on us. We are lonely and we are scared and we are exhausted and there is really no end in sight, clearly. And on the other hand is the toll it's taking on our group. Church work has slowed to a standstill. That's here, but that's really everywhere. I mean, what can we do when we can't really be together? It feels as though the group 
tends to be fragmenting and slowly drifting apart. And so as a group, we battle disinterest and doubt and boredom. But we don't even know who to share it with because we're not really able to be together. So can the church survive this? I hope it's a question that you feel the difficulty of. And what I want to do for a few minutes this morning is I want to give us five reassurances and four challenges. Now, that sounds like a nine-point sermon, but we're going to move fairly quickly. Five reassurances, four challenges. So things that we need to remember in a time like this that will give us some confidence and some assurance. The first is, God is determined to have a people. So that's why we're here in Matthew 16. In verse 18, Jesus says, Matthew 16 and verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. First of all, I want you to see the certainty and determination in what Jesus says. I will build my church. This is going to happen. Jesus is confident in it. Jesus is determined to do it. And then that word church which very often we associate with a building or we associate with something that's other than who people really are, some organization or hierarchy. Jesus is not saying anything like that. He is saying, I'm going to have my people. They will be my people, and they will always be my people. It is part of Jesus' mission to lead behind a people, and he speaks about that with confidence. And that's interesting to me because that's not a new desire for God. God has always wanted a people always wanted relationships with people, sometimes specific people, but most often a group of people, his people. So when you read about the Bible, you just crack it open and you see God in the garden with Adam and Eve wanting to be with the people. You see God calling Abraham and through him, making promises to him and his children that I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then when they are in Egyptian slavery, he brings them out of that slavery. And this is what he says to them. This is Exodus 19 and verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You're going to be my nation, my kingdom. You are going to be my people. And so the Old Testament details how God interacts with his people. And over and over again, He says, I want my people and I will preserve my people, but they're not always going to be just okay. Sometimes God's going to let his people go through things. And sometimes God is going to rescue his people like he does from Egyptian slavery. And I just want you to see, especially as we've been studying this in our devotional readings through the year, and we've gone through a lot of the Old Testament story. Even this week, we've gone through the story of Esther. And in the story of Esther, how the people are threatened and how how is God going to deliver his people? Esther, we don't know, but... Maybe this woman who God has somehow providentially guided into being queen and through Mordecai, who just happens to be in the right place at the right time, maybe God's going to use them to deliver his people. And over and over again, God saves his people. Even when they go into captivity, God brings them back from captivity. Even when they're there in Babylonian captivity, he is there with Daniel. He is there with Ezra and Nehemiah and this ragtag group of people who have come back from captivity. Over and over again, God preserves, even when the, everything is hanging by a thread, God is determined to have a people. Sometimes it's called a remnant. You know, the, the group of what's left. And the only people left are this small group. Sometimes, like in the days of Elijah, there is only a small group who actually cares about following God. But God says, you know what, I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And in Paul's day, Paul writes about how only a small fraction of the Jewish people had become Christians. And he says, even now there is a remnant 
according to grace. Just a small group. But God is still determined to have a people. I want us to bask in the deep reality of God's determination. He will not stop. And if you read the Old Testament and you miss that, you have missed it. So when we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus is creating his people and then his people are under attack from corruption and hypocrisy within and from persecution and opposition without and yet they continue to be a people. And you know that continued through the centuries after the New Testament was completed. This is not the first time that bad things have happened to people who follow Jesus. So I want us to take confidence from the fact that God has seen this before and God's determination has not changed. I also want to show you, look again at verse 18 with me. In verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I do not like the translation. You might have a footnote where it says the gates of hell. That word is not hell. That word is Hades. Hades is the realm of the dead. What he is saying is, I will build my people and death won't stop them. Jesus will continue to have a people no matter what, even if Death attempts to intervene. And I'm not sure we chew on that enough. That God is determined to have a connection and a relationship with us and that death won't keep us from him and death won't end his work. So when there are things that happen in our world that bring death, they are not a threat to Jesus' church because Jesus' church continues to be Jesus' church even when we die. God is determined to have a people And we can be confident that COVID is not going to end that. Just as the church has survived countless persecutions and plagues and famines and depressions and revolutions throughout the centuries, not because of us, not because of social realities, but because God is determined to have a people, we can be confident that the church will continue to survive. Second, this is not a new thing. I want you to go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. It is a general truth of Scripture that people are the same. And that what we experience is not some kind of revolutionary new thing. We are people just like people have always been. And we go through things just like people have always gone through. So while you're turning to 1 Corinthians 10, I want to show you. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has been already in the ages before us. Solomon alerts us to the fact that even though we might not acknowledge it, what we are living through is not new. It has happened before, to people before, it is the human experience, and other people understand it and have gone through it before us. Now, I understand, you know, we might have some different technologies, we might have some different contexts, but the problems are the same problems. They're problems of humanity. They're problems of character. They're problems of the way we treat each other, and they're problems of things outside our control. That's just the human experience, creation to today. This is not a new thing. So look with me in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So he has gone through all the temptations that faced Israel. Israel came out of Egyptian slavery and they struggled and they were tempted and they fell. And so he says, look at all these temptations and then don't think that you're different. Your temptations are their temptations and their temptations are your temptations. And the only way that you are going to resist them is by seeking God's way of escape, knowing that God is faithful, knowing that God won't present you with situations that you can't handle. And wherever we are, he says in verse 13, we know that what we are experiencing is common to man. It is not a new thing. Now that's reassuring on one hand, right? But I also want to take that a level deeper. I believe that this experience, if we rightly interpret it and work through it, can help us to relate better to the people that we see in Scripture and in our own past. We regularly read, when we read the Bible, about famines. For example, in the days of Ruth, when Ruth's mother-in-law has to flee Israel and go to Moab because there's a famine. Or if you read the prodigal son story, the prodigal son finally comes to himself because there's a famine. He doesn't have any money and nobody gave him anything, so he ends up feeding pigs. So a famine is a reality. We read regularly in the Bible about invading armies. We read regularly in the Bible, have you ever really thought about the word pestilence? Maybe that's part of what we're experiencing. And you read about plagues. And you know, when you read about it in the Bible, and you're in 21st century America, and you know, maybe you got your sandwich while you read, it's kind of hard to relate. But when you suffer a little bit, when you struggle, when you worry, it really puts you in the mindset this is not something that's uncommon. In fact, what's uncommon is being, to eat, being able to eat my sandwich in relative peace. That's what's new. That's what's different. And I can relate a little better. So in the moments like these, we feel the personal impact. This is what it feels like to have troubles like these. And we feel our utter helplessness to be able to say, there is nothing I can do about this. I cannot fix it. I cannot help it. I'm just helpless. In moments like these, we feel the need for faith in God. Because everything is about worry and anxiety and uncertainty and the ground is shifting underneath us. So now we can see Bible people in living color. Now we know what it feels like to trust God in the story that Taryn read for us when Hezekiah hears this army, sees this army outside the gates of Jerusalem and says, I need to ask God about this. What an act of faith. If you've ever been terror, feeling the terror of and the challenge of, True helplessness. So we have the confidence not only to relate to those people, but to know that people have been suffering and struggling for centuries. And yet the church has always survived. So we know that the church will survive this as well. Third, trials have a benefit. Let's look in James 1. James 1. James 1 and verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Testing changes us. In fact, here, James says it produces steadfastness or patience. And by 
exposing our lack of it. It says this is an area in which you need to grow. So I could just ask, does anybody want this whole problem to just end? Anybody relate to that? I, I tell you, I can't wait for it to just end. Do you know what that is? That is the definition of impatience. Wanting something to just end. So when James says, testing produces patience, what he is saying is sometimes it is exposing our need to be able to handle and live in a really hard situation for an indefinite period of time. And that through that we grow. In fact, verse 4 says, when we do have that, we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That implies that without that, we are lacking in our impatience, in our just get everything unpleasant over with. We are impatient and we need to grow. So God uses trials like these to fill in gaps in our character, make us into more of what we should be. In times like these, we learn about ourselves and we learn about the character of our faith In times like these, we yearn for a better world, a world where we're not subject to disease, where we don't get sick, where we're not constantly vulnerable to death. We yearn for a world where life is not hard, where the final victory comes over sins that keep attacking us. In times like these, we learn to appreciate what we have. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to be able to just see people smile again. I can't wait to be able to shake somebody's hand again without that, oh no, am I not supposed to do this feeling. I can't wait to just have dinner with friends, maybe even in a restaurant. Simple things that I did not appreciate before now have a value. So perhaps most importantly, I think we can learn in a crisis like this the tremendous value of being together. There are parts of the Christian faith that just cannot be done remotely. We just can't do it. And I know we're feeling the pain of that. But if we come out of this crisis with a deeper sense of I want to be together, I'm going to say yes where I might have said no before, then it will be a blessing to us. And it will strengthen the church. In fact, the church can not just survive, it can thrive if we come out of this more determined to band together. Fourth, our weakness shows Christ's strength. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to go here real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul talks here about an affliction that he went through. He describes it this way, 2 Corinthians 1.8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So Paul says, Affliction made him rely not on himself, but on God. One of the most frustrating parts of this uh, pandemic is how little control we have. You know, even when you wear a mask, you can still get it. Our medicine doesn't help it. Our government can't fix it. What can you do? There is so little 
And we still cling to our control. I mean, we try to take our remedies. We try to be wise and careful and thoughtful. But we are not in control. You see, in ordinary times, this is something we take for granted. We feel in control all the time. You know, if we have a problem, we manage it. We make decisions. We fix things that are broken. You know, if there's a problem, you go to the person who you pay to fix the problem. And so our money becomes the way we fix everything that's amiss in our lives. And we are used to that. We're used to tailoring our lives so that everything is comfortable and exactly like we like. And all of a sudden, all of that is taken away from us. There is an issue here that is too big for us. And none of our tools work. Money won't help. Listen to what Paul says again in verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, it is times like these that help us learn how much we have been relying on ourselves, how much we have been fixing things and working on things and reaching out just because we were uncomfortable. He says we learn to rely on God who raises the dead. Can I say it this way? A church that relies on God rather than itself is so much stronger. A church that relies on God will thrive and grow. So the church can not only survive COVID, COVID may really help if it helps us to rely on God and not on ourselves. Fifth thing, unity is always possible through the Spirit. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment. Ephesians 4. This crisis is presenting a threat to Christian unity. Now, that threat is coming from a political focus, sometimes from a fend-for-ourselves type mentality, sometimes just from distance from each other, and at all times from a lack of love for each other. Ephesians 4 and verse 3. Ephesians 4, 3, Paul says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I want to highlight that idea, the unity of the Spirit, Because I believe the focus of the idea of the unity of the Spirit is that the Spirit is the one who makes us one. We have unity in Him and through Him. And that is something that people just can't do on their own. We need God's help to make us one. Now, God has done that in the past. God, well, Jesus, took Simon the Zealot, who is a a revolutionary against Rome, and and Matthew, the tax collector, who works for Rome, and says, hey, guys, you're in the 12. Throws them together and expects them to be able to say, you know what, we have some political differences, to put it mildly. But we've got something more important that we're going to focus on. God did it when he took Jews and Gentiles with all the racial hatred, with the forced separation, where a Jew would say, I can't even be in a room with a Gentile or else I'll become unclean. And he put them in one body. Said, now get along. Work it out. Figure it out. It may be that we are learning in this crisis the danger of our thinking being primarily political or primarily selfish. That those types of thinking are not led by the Spirit. And that those types of thinking end up dividing us rather than uniting us. Yet unity is still possible when the Spirit of God is involved. How that works is, as we follow the Spirit, as the Spirit leads us, as we fill ourselves with the Spirit, we get closer together instead of further apart. We become more like each other because we see in each other the marks of the Spirit's work. 
I see in you the same love and joy and peace that I'm pursuing. I am kinder and gentler and more self-controlled toward you. And so we band together as we serve the Lord and grow in Christ together. It is possible even now to be unified because with God all things are possible, including unity. All right, so that's my five reassurances. So yes, we're more than halfway through the nine points, but uh, these are going to be a little bit shorter. I, I have four challenges. You know, it is one thing to say, yes, the church is going to survive. It is another thing to say, what, what's my duty? Where do I go? What should I do? How should I respond? And so I want to give a few questions in that direction. First, uh, where am I spiritually? Where am I? We talk a lot about the importance of influence and others and how other people affect us. And that's still true even in times of COVID. But if we are not able to be accountable to each other in the same way, then we have to make doubly sure that we are aware of our own spiritual state. So I'm asking, do I have a diminished spiritual interest? Am I being tempted? Am I being tempted toward pornography? Something to make me feel good when everything else feels bad? Am I experiencing more family conflict, anger, frustration that boils over at home because I'm frustrated about things that are outside of my control? Am I battling anxiety where there's so much I don't know and so much to be afraid of that I need to be honest about how this is impacting me in my spiritual state? Am I so focused on what's happening around me that I'm overlooking what's happening within me? Where am I? What am I feeding myself? What is my spiritual diet? Who am I listening to? Faking it is a lot easier when there aren't people around to look you right in the face and say, what's going on with you? Am I faking it? Where am I? These are the questions we should be asking on a regular basis to each other. It is a challenge for us. How are you doing? Here is the danger. We can talk about the church. We can talk about is the church going to survive, and I am fully confident that the church is going to survive, but that doesn't mean that my spiritual life is where it needs to be. I'm asking you, where are you? What is this crisis exposing about me or teaching me? We read how James says that trials fill in the gaps in our character, making us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So if that's true, if that's true, what am I learning? What is being exposed to me? What am I missing? Well, I'm the one talking, so I guess I should tell you some of the things that this has exposed for me. It has exposed for me the reliance I have on our worship times and our assembly times to see and connect with people. I have just, in the past, been comfortable saying, well, I'll see them Sunday. I'll talk to them, ask them, and not pursuing relationships outside of this time. It has shown me that I need to be able to speak the truth in regular conversations and not just in sermons. I've got to be able to tell you what I need to tell you even if I'm not preaching about it. It's shown me that my busyness was a major problem and that, as a kind of corollary to that, we needed to spend more time together as a family. It has shown me that my inputs, the 
things I'm listening to and thinking about need to reflect my commitments. I can't just listen to whatever and then expect to be following through with the commitments that I've made. It's also showing me that I need to reach out more to more people in the church and outside the church. So what is it exposing about you, your relationships, your inner life? What's it exposing about your view of your work? Mainly, are you failing the test? Where are you? Third, how am I contributing to local unity? Jesus prayed for unity, that they all may be one. As the Father is in Him, He is in the Father. Paul talks about love, being patient and kind and selfless, not arrogant, not resentful, never giving up on people. And when those verses in 1 Corinthians 13 are described, they are primarily in context local. It's about how we deal with each other, not just love in the abstract. We often talk about how love is an action and not just a feeling. So what are you doing with your actions? Show love for your brothers in this local church. This crisis has revealed some fissures in how Christians think and how Christians politically respond to each other. And those political tentacles are threatening to infiltrate every area of our lives at this moment. They are threatening to polarize and divide us along the lines of things that are not from God. That is not the will of Jesus. Jesus wants us to be unified. So, in my interactions with people here, am I being motivated by politics or by love? Do I love and respond in the same way to people who think that masks are dumb and pointless as I do to those who think they are essential, vice versa? I'm thankful, by the way, for our elders' leadership on that issue in our assembly. Having talked to a number of people across the country, a lot of groups are really struggling with that. And I am thankful for the response of our members who have been respectful of the elders' decisions even when they didn't always agree. That's the way a local church should work. And I'm thankful for that. It is a good testimony to the group here. As Republicans or Democrats, do we view people our brethren, as those who just view politics differently, or are we letting those things divide us and threaten our unity? Where are we? Am I building bridges with my brethren? Am I giving? Am I praying? Am I serving them? Am I complaining about them, or am I supporting and praising them? The question really is, are we going to turn on each other when things get hard? Are we going to be everything is fine when everything is fine? And then as soon as difficulty strikes, we begin to divide. What are you doing to contribute to unity here? Last question. Am I reaching out? Scripture tells us, do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. Paul tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition, but in everything, consider others more significant than yourselves. If anything, for me, this crisis has caught me flat-footed and off-balance. In a lot of ways, I just feel like I'm responding to things instead of having a clear plan. Okay, this is what I want to do now and be now. But the chances are very good that other people are suffering more than we are, are hurting and are in need.
And if that's the case, am I reaching out? Am I thinking about and caring for and showing love to other people? That is the mind of Christ, and that is what the world needs. And it's also what will help the church survive. So, when I say reaching out, I mean reaching out in all its forms. To our brothers, to our friends, to our family, to our co-workers, and to the lost. Because people in our time are lonely and broke and sick and tired and angry. People need Jesus. That's the answer. And if we know that answer, then we can help them. But we have to reach out. So instead of looking at what we don't have in a time like this, let's look at what we do have. We have connections and relationships and people that we can reach out to. And we have peace with God as a place from which to reach out. Now, the reason these challenges are important Where am I spiritually? What is this crisis exposing about me? How am I contributing to local unity and am I reaching out? It's because these are the things that will mark the character of the church after the crisis ends. So, don't we want to be a people who are spiritually alive? Don't we want to be a people who are willing to change and grow? Don't we want to be a people who are unified by the Spirit? And don't we want to be a people who are reaching out to the world? Isn't that who we want to be? So if that's who we want to be then, that's who we need to be now. So to those who are listening, whether here in this building or online, I just want to say we're open for business. We're doing the work. And we are ready to serve the Lord and to serve other people. And if there is something that we can do to help you, we encourage you to reach out to us. Let us know how we can help. Especially for those who are listening online, you can go to our website, fairviewparkchurch.com. The contact form there, contact us. Let us know how we can help. The church will survive COVID. The question is, how will you do? And is there something that you need to change, to grow in, to work on? This is the time that we've set aside for those who are interested in making something known to this group to have an opportunity to respond. We call it the invitation. We invite you. If there's a need you want to make known to us, have us pray with you and for you about it. Or if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, have your sins washed away and begin a walk with him. If there's any need that you have, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.